Hi, I'm Roshan Karyappa. Welcome to the 100th episode of the Startup Operator podcast. I couldn't think of a more apt guest for today than Yamini Butt. She's the co-founder and CEO of Vimo and also more interestingly, my boss. Now, Vimo is among the handful of startups in the world that operate in the enterprise SaaS world. So, we work with some of the largest banks and insurance companies across the globe and in this conversation I spoke to Yamini about what it takes to build and sell for the enterprise. So, we focused on things like opportunities and challenges within the space, how to evaluate if you are ready and what you should do to graduate. Along the way we discussed some of the nuances of setting up sales, customer success, product and service delivery functions in the large enterprise world. This is a fascinating conversation and I believe it's a masterclass for how one should operate in this enterprise SaaS space. I'm sure you'll like it, so do stick around. Hi, Amni. Welcome to the Startup Operator Podcast. Thank you so much uh, for making the time. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Yeah, I couldn't uh, think of a more suitable guest for the 100th episode on the podcast. So, you know, really looking forward to this conversation. So the team of... Yeah, so the theme of this podcast uh, will focus on building and selling to the enterprise. And you know, Vimo is one of the handful of startups in the world that operates in the enterprise domain, right? So we have significant expertise in that. I am familiar with part of the story, but you know, just for some context for the listeners, you know, how did we pick the enterprise or did the enterprise pick us? Could you take us through some of that early days in terms of how that happened? Yeah. So when we started the company, prior to that, I was at McKinsey, co-founder was at Google and he approached the whole problem statement of sales productivity in a very product first way. I approached it in a very uh, sales productivity, something I engaged with many clients on at McKinsey in a very consultative fashion. And for me, it was important to go and speak with CXOs of businesses to understand what was a problem worth solving and that we would meaningfully get paid for right and be able to capture value on so my approach was very business stakeholder led right from the beginning i do believe which part of the enterprise play you fall into whether it's smb or mid-market or large enterprise or super large like whale accounts etc kind of depends on the background you have as founders if you look for example examples like Nutanix, right? If you take that was probably the third startup of some of those founding team members. Everything that they tried before that was also in large enterprise. Some of the co-founders there had background serving with large uh, SIs like TCS, etc. Nutanix became a hit. Many of those founding members later went on to found other companies and become CEOs like ThoughtSpot, Rubrik, etc. All of them again target large enterprise, right? So it's something about the DNA that you identify with a certain level of customer and if you look at the cohort of startups that you know the zoho team later went and founded most of them target smb again there is this whole dna that has seeped into that's helping them identify better with that problem statement or customer segment right so i do believe a lot, lot of mckinsey ex mckinsey alumni either going to b2c or usually going to large enterprise software right and that's again a carryover of the dna you've consulted you've engaged deeply with sponsors business leaders etc and you carry that forward so i do think it's a very core part of dna and for us the journey was we did we were very stakeholder led we did have initial conversations with smb mid market very quickly realized that the problem statement we are trying to solve which is being able to learn from the best sales reps and coach others required larger information sets to be relevant and have impact right so we needed scale to be able to solve that 
and naturally moving towards larger and larger sales teams made sense for us. That's how we shifted very quickly up market and started targeting whale accounts. Right. So if I understand correctly, it's very intrinsic to an organization, right? I mean, you can add certain nuances and you can add certain features of the large enterprise play, but it's also very intrinsic and a lot of it is dependent on the founder journey itself, right? And here, you know, as the marketing guy, I have to add that Waymo today works with 50 plus large enterprises, some of the largest banks and insurers, you know, <laughs> across uh, Asia, Japan and the US. So, you know, there's a lot of interest growing in the ecosystem about going enterprise, right? You know, literally the hot topic right now is how do you build for the enterprise, sell, for the, sell to the enterprise and so on, right? What are some things that, you know, founders should beware of in terms of, you know, opportunities and challenges? What makes the enterprise different? Yeah, so usually every function is different when you're targeting, the larger the customer you're targeting, right? If you take marketing, for example, Roshan, we know from our own experience that we don't expect our customers to discover us through the website. Uh, right. So showing up on the front page of Google again is not the agenda for us. There are two angles to it. One is which segment of customer do you target? There is also whether your category is new or existing. In ours, Vimo being a large enterprise, in a way of greenfield categories, a category that we are creating, this natural discovery is not the way we our customers find us, right? But events and influencer networks are ways in which we get to our target ICP, right? Therefore, those matter a lot. So that's a simple example of marketing. Now, every single function has its nuances when you're dealing with an SMB customer base versus a large enterprise customer base. And therefore, it starts with probably the founder's background DNA on which problem statement and stakeholder they identify with. But very soon, you'll see that every single person you hire, business functional leaders that you bring into the company, process as you said, what you celebrate, for example, start getting attuned a lot to you know the customer segment that you're tracking in this case for us large enterprise right i remember one of the first crazy parties we had in vimo was when we cracked into the largest uh, bank in the country right and uh, it was not about you know 2000 users or 10000 users etc it was about winning that major logo all right and even till date the first major logo of any new market is a game changer for us because usually it's one of the top 3 insurers or one of the top five banks and that's a very very big deal right so every aspect of the company starts looking different right so the problem statement that you pick to solve becomes super important and here again right what is a useful self-evaluation criteria for you know founders looking up looking at you know this this enterprise itself right i mean in terms of you know am i important enough for let's say a cxo to sign or you know something of you know the decision making could be at a manager level or maybe at a senior manager level and so on would my budgets get allocated at the beginning of the year or you know i mean it could be some discretionary budget and so on and so forth right and there are of course positives and negatives to both of this and there are nuances to both of this so what is an important self-evaluation criteria for founders looking at you know am i relevant for enterprise or not yeah so what i usually see when i meet a bunch of startup founders in the SaaS space is when we when we share Waymo journey, usually every founder there identifies with the large enterprise story. The fact that we spent one year educating a customer and boom, it's a $1 million deal, right? And everyone's eyes shine that what one customer, 1 million and here I had to go acquire 10,000 to make it to 1 million. It's a very different story, right? I think there are a few things founders need to think of 
actually two fundamental things i think to really pressure test whether their organization's dna can adapt to large enterprise because you'll always have you'll always have once you have 10 15 customers you'll always have one who looks really bigger than the rest right uh, the pareto principle kicks in and then you start wondering can all my customers be like that yeah. of course the fundamental question is is the product and the market you are targeting does the large enterprise make it meaty enough right for companies like microsoft salesforce 70 80% of the revenue even today comes from very large enterprises does that mix apply to your product segment it's worth for example if you're targeting marketing agencies then or if you're targeting telcos and there are only three large like apply your product to that segment and see whether that makes sense or not right for you to be able to get to like 100 million scale for example theoretically but outside of that there are two things that are worth asking my life is very different from an smb founder's life 90% of their time is usually spent in office with their product team making sure every button behaves in a certain way on the whole user journey right 90% of my time is in speaking goes into speaking with cxos to build top down momentum for the category we are creating and get their buy in to invest in something like wimo when they were one not even probably aware that there is a area of software that can solve their core problems but also have not even budgeted for something like this right so how do they make it front and center and how can i tie something like wimo into their top two business problems for the year right so 90% of my time goes into that the second aspect is how that finally gets executed right which is speaking usually speaking with one customer you believe you can solve their problem i would urge anyone who's trying to do an upmarket journey to speak with 10 15 customers in one go like back to back over 10 days over 30 days right hear out all their stories when it's one customer you speak with you feel like you can adapt three things in the product and service this customer put one person to take care of the account right when you speak with 15 you will have to distill and see what is the lowest common denominator that the product as is will solve and how much above that needs to be configurable and adapt to legacies of these 15 companies right and that's where you'll realize how the whole journey itself looks different and how supporting 15 of those customers will require an entire different org culture and you know skills and competencies to be built versus what you have today and that's what you need to sign up for the second mistake that i've seen many make is once they have made the bet on enterprise they're dragging their feet and trying to keep the smb segment also alive because that's how you started you've shown some success potentially you've even raised funding right and then you want to continue that while you have acquired one or two or three customers in enterprise and that's where probably you'll end up not satisfying either segment because the product calls you to make or calls you to make are dramatically different right so if you do that right ask yourself the question are you okay spending 90% of your time speaking with customers rather than your product team and second have you had enough 10 15 of those conversations and can identify a path on how the product will look and you're okay building the product and the org that way that's when i would suggest you should be making the leap and of course all of that should add up to a journey up to 100 million at the least right right so I mean, for me, I've always been paranoid about landing in the middle, right? I mean, neither neither enterprise nor nor properly SMB, yeah. and not not having a template to kind of replicate either your product thinking or your sales or whatever else. You referenced category creation a couple of times, and I want to talk about that specifically, right? Now, everybody today wants to create a category because you know this SaaS world is big, cloud is big, and everything could arguably become a billion-dollar market ten years down the line, right? Now again, this is one of those things that 
is it necessary for founders to fight this battle you know in the year 0 year 1 of their journey or is it something that organically sort of builds up and becomes a meaningful category by itself what do you think in, in your opinion i think part of again i think it comes to the dna of the company i would say if depending on what your end goal is you want to build a unicorn it's not like you have to take a choice between category creation or competing in an existing category right for example today if someone what is the largest saas category it's probably crm and salesforce is the biggest right if someone you know why no sits on top and attempts to add value 10x more value on top of that in terms of driving sales productivity so we are trying to create a category around sales acceleration but it's quite possible for someone to say hey you know what ultimately salesforce is a system of record right i need it to be less complex here is an enterprise system of record which is a a database that anyone in the org can access based on the permissions and rights and it's 10x faster than salesforce and we will only ever be a easily accessible friendly database right mm-hmm. and by the way we are probably 100th the complexity and probably 110th the cost or even like 70% the cost i have a feeling a lot of enterprises would bite that because the product which is way more cleaner after 20 years of existence salesforce is a great system of record not where action happens right so someone can actually simplify that problem statement compete and potentially be a big mover in this market so i don't think it's necessarily important to invent a category if you look at it today suddenly saas valuations have gone from like 8x 10x like when we were doing our series a 8 6x to 10x we had to fight uh, right or show value on then somewhere around somewhere it started growing like 12x to 15x was debated now it's 40 and nobody is blinking right so and even public market saas is at 20 so even that has seen a huge journey upwards why is that happening i do believe when you look at a situation like covid and you see the largest enterprises moving in terms of digitization you realize that the stack that will get replaced over the next few years is massive everything will get replaced core banking systems will get replaced databases will get replaced api systems will get replaced many systems will get replaced right if you look at it that way today out of a large enterprises entire it budget probably less than 1% is saas so think about the value that the you know like the 100% will create when it's getting replaced right and a lot of business budget for solving problems a lot of consulting budget all of that coming into saas right so there is a massive market and 90% of the market as of date could be about replacing core systems so i don't think necessarily you have to create a new category part of that was our choice because we started with we we, we i think bengal and my dna was in can we do enterprise software in a very user loved way and a user first way and can we learn from the org itself to figure out how to move the needle on sales right so that required innovation nothing was doing that no one was designing solutions from a user ex- end user user experience point employee user experience point of view right which naturally put us on the path towards innovation and turned out to be a new category so otherwise i don't think people should consciously like only do that to capture value yeah one of the defining traits of wino uh, and again i'm not uh, you know trying to pass off some marketing spiel but genuinely what i experienced when i first used wino was the amount of user love there was right because i view crm systems uh, you name it starting from vtiger in 2008 to you know um, salesforce and i built on salesforce as well and 
you know, one of the things that hits you immediately when you use an enterprise product is how little focus there is on the end user who has to use it perhaps 90% of the time, more than anyone else, right? So it's sold to managers, but it's also built for managers, most of the enterprise uh, systems. And you're right, I mean, I think literally the entire stack is going to get sassified. With that out of the way, let's look at some of the functional nuances, right? And I want to look at sales. Now, with enterprise sales, first of all, enterprise sales is very sales-led, right? So you build with your customer and there are certain very unique characteristics about enterprise sales that I, I feel like people who have operated outside of it will find very weird or even like, you know, will not be able to make peace with, right? You know, we've sold to 60 plus large enterprises across the world. We've seen various types of these folks, right? What have we learned at Vimo about, you know, serving these large enterprises from a sales perspective? What do you think works? What absolutely doesn't? Yeah. yeah. Many actually question, and I've seen this even amongst investor community, right? Where they question that because every single client of Vimos is, you know, usually one of the largest banks or insurers, it's quite possible that we have built a lot of custom stuff that the code base is not common, that, you know, every customer is unique, can the product be copied, etc. Have you clarify that hundred all of our customers are sitting on the same code base and uh, there is only configuration on top and integrations on top, right? It's not like we're custom building stuff for clients. So uh, one of the very important things to recognize is SaaS, uh, large enterprise SaaS products are as replicable and repeatable and scalable. If you think of it that way and build it that way, as SMB, ICB products are, right? What is different though, is 90% of the go-to-market team's effort and time will be spent trying to understand a customer's unique problems. They may not be that unique. Two, two insurers may actually be facing the same problem. All of them face agent attrition as an issue, right? Or agent productivity as an issue or agent activation as an issue. But you have to listen to their unique stories, acknowledge their problems as unique, acknowledge their technology challenges as unique, make them feel like your product is tailored to solve their unique problems and can be customized taking into account both their legacy as well as a future journey they want to get to but also help you set the pace for that journey you can't no enterprise leader will believe overnight they can transform because the software is so cool there's a lot of change management that goes into moving the needle for an average of for example 10,000 salespeople suddenly getting onto a new system right I think 90% of our go-to-market team's time goes into listening and acknowledging that and marrying that with, back with the product story. Many people who see this from outside assume 90% of it is going into nuancing the product to be different in two cases. It's not. It's the same product. 90% is going into giving, making them feel that we understand and can uniquely solve their problems, right? So that is the big difference. So a lot of time goes into awareness, solutioning positioning how this solves your problem and then the typical sales things right why us why now but a lot of time goes into that upfront marrying this with your context kind of storytelling right yeah yeah again one of the things that you know i realized as soon as you know i started doing sales calls was beyond a point people didn't really care about your features and workflows as much as you know what it could do for them right what is your solution beyond the product itself and i want to delve on couple of things that you brought up right so one is the fact that you have to you, your sale has to be consultative right your salesperson has to know the business has to sort of understand the, the customers day in the life in some sense right and also engineer the solution to meet their outcomes 
per se, right? And we've had to verticalize a fair bit for the industries that we serve, whether it's banking or insurance, right? So can you just talk about that verticalization journey, you know, how it started and, you know, what are some things you've learned on that front? Yeah. Yeah. Verticalization for us was a confluence of two, three things happening, right? One is, you know that you're creating a new category and the category some claims that they we will have sales impact, out, impact the outcomes, right? Will really move the needle. And we will do it in an intelligent way in a large distributed employee base, right? Which required us to be able to learn from data coming in, behavioral information coming in. Now, when you're trying to do something like that and actually promising outcome movement, it's tough to not build context into it. You will have to understand the way insurance is sold is very different from the way like a pack of like, you know, chips is sold is very different from the way software is sold, right? And building that buying journey into your solution helps you be way more sharpshooting and intelligent, right? Which was one choice we made towards. If truly we have to build a coaching network, right? And learn from the best salespeople and communicate that down to an average salesperson, we have to have vertical context so we can make that more and more relevant. It's very easy for intelligent solutions to be precisely wrong. It's very important for intelligent solutions to be vaguely right. Right. And in trying to do that, context helps and verticalization gives you that context. Right. The second thing which worked in our favor was we start on uh, Asia side of the world and then now we are going global to the Western markets. Right. Financial services happens to have very similar broad models of selling around the world. And therefore, the use cases are applicable for a larger TAM. Also, the logos are very highly referenceable. So that helped us address the TAM and geographic expansion journey also. So it was a confluence of these two things that made us very confident and also realizing that for some of the largest enterprise companies, 70% revenue came from their large accounts and more than half of that was usually financial services. Like if you look at Gartner or Microsoft, BFSI, banking and financial services and insurance is the largest vertical and in many cases, the only named vertical, even if you look at Seismic today or Adobe, etc. out of their horizontal solutions, the vertical is usually targeting BFSI, right? That gives you confidence that you're addressing roughly about 40-50% of the large enterprise market anyway, right? So that gives you a reasonably sizable time. Right. So let's move to customer success. And one of the things, again, that everyone indeed can learn from large enterprise is how much of an overlap there is between sales and customer success, right? Because sales is extremely consultative and customer success is also, you know, at the, usually we hire people from our customers, essentially, right? You know, yeah. people with banking experience or insurance experience to, to really help our customers learn how to use the product and engineer the outcomes that they so desire, right? So this is all way beyond just expansion and growth and, you know, helping customers understand how to use the product as such. So what have our key learnings on customer success been over the last like seven, eight years? Yeah, for us, I, uh, so about 50% of Wymo's bookings every year come from expansion, right? Which is existing customers. It also happens that like we are a land and expand kind of a product. So usually the land deals could be 100K and finally like three years later, that account could be a million dollar account, right? Which means the 102 million, which is a 900K journey has happened through expansion. So those deals are usually much bigger, right? Therefore, while the core DNA of a sales and CS person are still different, like one is driven by the bookings and deal closure and the commissions, and the other is driven by outcomes and impact and being a trusted advisor, right? While that is different, 
both are extremely consultative in the case of Vimeo, right? And uh, which which is exactly how you said. For us, our learning over the last eight nine years has been that sorry, it's not seven to eight years has been that one customer success. The first job when you're launching with any new customer is to make sure that the launch promise is delivered. The fact that we can go live within four weeks or six weeks or whatever's committed, right? The fact that you can replace ABC systems that you have, the fact that you can view this kind of data uh, or you get these kind of insights, that promise has to get delivered. And many times that is usually sitting with the delivery teams, the solutioning and delivery teams, right? Because a lot of communication on understanding customer's context comes into place and then configuring the solution like it's 80 20 80 percent of that is the conversation and understanding bit 20 percent is actually the configuration of the solution itself right that is the first problem statement until that happens we cannot move on to the second problem statement which is actually being able to show you impact on your outcomes or nudging you in the right direction to extract roi out of this whole investment but we noticed that the moment uh, solution has gone live, we have adoption, right? And we've solved all the adoption related challenges, etc. Once it's become a become the way they work, it's CSS role has often been about highlighting one or two levers at any point in time that can help the business leader with control on how to move the needle, right? For example, your lead conversion rate is X percent, a CS person even looking on behalf of the business sponsor at the data and saying, hey, you know what, 16% of your leads are not getting allocated within even three days. That's massive leakage. And here is one thing we can tweak to allocate it within the next, within the first 15 minutes, right? That makes a business leader believe that they have a lot of control on the journey that they need to take to deliver their own outcomes, right? That becomes a primary responsibility of the CS person. Give levers and highlight insights that can help business leaders act and unlock value for themselves. Right. Yeah, it's just way beyond typical project management type of thing where, you know, you tell me what to do and I will configure this uh, for you, right? Yeah. I mean, you're actually being proactive and helping the person. You're not just selling a car, you're teaching a person how to drive it as well efficiently. And yeah. Um, yeah. we spoke earlier about building with customers, right? And uh, in the large enterprise, your roadmap is defined by the first few customers that you work with, right? And it's yeah. a delicate balance, I would say, right? Because the first few people you work with really define your destiny. And, you know, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about, you know, how do you balance what is core to you, right? What your vision is and, you know, with what the first few customers want. And, you know, it, it could even be people in new geographies, for example, yeah. where you're keen to land the logo and so on, right? So how do you, how do, you do this delicate balance? Yeah. Again, there is a very common outside in perception that your first few customers have irreversibly you know probably meddled with your product vision and roadmap right again i would go back to the same thing which is at any point in time when you are making the journey into a new segment or with your first few large enterprise customers don't have one conversation have 10 have 10 in parallel right and initially customers understand if you are going to say we don't have this today we will consider this into our roadmap right don't overcome it beyond that once you have 10, you will yourself have very clear sense of what will never make it to the roadmap versus what should potentially be part of your roadmap because it's it's the real hook to locking in these customers or expanding or unlocking value for them, etc. Right? So you become clearer on your medium term yes and no answers. So that is the first part, right? The second tip we have here is you will have to say no 
In the case of SMB, the no is very straightforward. What you demo is what you get mostly. In the case of enterprise, there is an the art of saying no, right? And that usually, this is where product comes first and understanding of the customer's context comes into play. You have to be able to tell them why in this one aspect, they need to become future ready. And therefore, your way to do it is the right way to do it rather than their way to do it, which is carrying the legacy a few years forward, which probably is not advantageous to them, right? So you have to portray it in light of their own, the journey they themselves need to go through, right? And why now is the time for them to make that decision and therefore sell the product way of doing it rather than their unique way of solving it. So two bits, don't have one conversation, have 10. Second, there is a way to say no. It's mostly around helping them become future ready and uh, communicating that way. Right. Yeah. Customers are a great way of identifying problem statements and challenges, but they're not the best at offering solutions, right? Because often when you hear solutions from customers, it's very, very low resolution and, and doing that whole yeah. jobs to be done exercise in terms of, you know, what do you really need or what do you want to solve, right? You want to go from point yeah. A to point B. I mean, do you just want rollerblades or do you want like a rocket ship, right? And yeah. really understanding that, uh, that is where, you know, all of the product thinking comes into play. Can you recollect one or two instances where you were really tested on building something really outlandish for a particular customer and you know it was a hard no for you to say? Yeah, so there, there are times when we felt some of this could actually be the way this industry works. There are times when we realized that this is a unique one-off situation where we are probably having to pander to legacy for a bit too long, right? Definitely there is uh, one of the features Vimo has is to be able to suggest to a rep what's nearby. For example, if they, if you have a meeting on 5th Avenue on Friday at 11 a.m., the tool might suggest here are five other customers who need to be engaged who are close by. So you can ping them and figure out if they're available, right? It's it's meant to be, like, again, like I said, intelligent solutions have to be roughly useful rather than precisely wrong in their advice, right? That's, that's literally the first step of intelligence that someone needs to crack. So our goal there was to be approximately useful and help you action some things which intuitively you would have done uh, rather than pointing to one customer and saying here is another meeting you have to do the customer went uh, many times we've seen this behavior repeatedly customers believe that there is one precise way to solve it in this case the customer wanted the rep to drag and drop the exact route that they will take and then lock that in and then start escalating any deviation you see right now our salesperson's route may change for various different reasons maybe they need to have lunch maybe a better opportunity came for a better meeting maybe a customer was a no-show right now by trying to be precisely right and solving for this exact scenario the client thought of you will probably irritate the hell out of every salesperson using the solution right and that is where you needed to i think the first time we heard something like this we kind of believe that this is what every sales leader may want to do, right? Which is where the first learning that speak to 10, not just one, right? And then find a way to do an MVP and test this out. You do the MVP, no one is using that feature. You have evidence to show the customer this might not have value. Take the chance to A-B test another way to do this, adds value and that's you've proven to the client, right? It's not an easy journey, but early on, probably you need to have the, not, the, not just the conviction, your way versus my way, but actual intuitive sense of what the market needs versus what one customer wants to be able to make that decision, right? Uh, but yes, we did go down such paths 
and thankfully there were mistakes not really blunders so we were able to recover fairly quickly and the lesson we have learned today is every product person every solutioning person has the question they have to ask is tell me your problem articulate your problem right don't tell me how to build it i understand how you want us to build it but tell us the problem and we might have five other ways to solve it easier sometimes not so easy many times but that's something that we need to solve, we keep solving for right yeah i think uh, we couple of things right so one is i think we built a great amount of product intuition right simply from having operated in the space and you know really learned from the space and second is also the amount of data that we have right from all of the deployments that we've done and we're able to marry that very well to sort of present a more cohesive kind of a solution to the customer itself or prospect itself most of the time yeah. all right now let's talk about something which is like a a bad word in typical saas right which is services so people really shy away from services they're very reluctant to think about it and you know there's all sorts of things like okay we're a product company why should we bother you know customizing this that whatever but you know we've spoken again plenty of instances in this podcast where we said we'll have to build with the customer the customer defines your uh, product roadmap and so on and so forth and the fact that you know all of this expansion revenue is there for the taking you can literally expand your enterprise accounts with 30 40 or even 50% as we have done so how should someone think about building uh, a service delivery function right and also a related question is that you know should services be uh, profitable by itself or i mean would you say that you know i mean you can absorb it as a cost uh, in your initial phase of the journey and so on yeah two different angles there right if you are a point solution with a large enough tam probably services may not be the way you implement or become relevant to a customer right for example a gong kind of a solution working on only a salesforce kind of an integration still has massive tam because you are recording and giving advice with roughly similar configurations across customers right so you might hit to a very you might get to a very large revenue base and customer base without the need for massive amounts of configuration or integrations into multiple systems the moment you say hey i am going to tell a rep exactly what to say in terms of a script it suddenly the vertical aspect becomes very important the solutioning aspects become very important and service delivery is also 90% solutioning it right etc right so and then you're going to use that information into lnd systems in like Uh, compensation systems suddenly the integration start mattering a lot more so definitely point solutions with a large tam in sitting on top of one core platform have lesser dependency on services initially right platform solutions now if you look at like zoom has lesser dependency on services now if you look at viva or nceno or salesforce which are platform solutions which are trying to add, address the way a function itself works uh vimo also like this is the playbook for the function and a very large part of your workforce to work every day and it's core to how you operate suddenly the services aspect becomes important again 90% of that is solutioning and change management literally in terms of time spent 10% probably might actually end up being configuration right now if you see bookings of these companies right viva 50 is 50% of the booking purchase order is usually services sometimes more than that and uh, similarly with salesforce and there are core systems like core banking systems where 75 80% of the initial booking amount will actually be services because it's that much upfront effort in the case of vimo it's thankfully not as heavily dependent on uh, nuanced services every time to launch but there's one aspect where services are humongous value vimo solves sales outcomes as the problem statement right 
Now, sales is a, especially with so much digitization happening on around customer experience and customer journeys, a lot of enterprises, whether they're banks or insurers who are our targets, are going through massive amounts of digitization in their whole customer touch points, right? Therefore, there are a lot of new solutions being tested. Some of them work, some of them don't work. Wino being the platform of choice for salespeople to run their days on needs to be integrated with all of this transformation that is going around it, right? So on the day we launch, we launch within four to six weeks. But every three months, the choke point on sales has moved to a different problem statement. They are digitizing that aspect to remove that choke point. And Wino needs to talk to whatever that solution is because we are a system of engagement with the salespeople, right? So our journey, uh, it's service celebrating is less about customizations. It's a lot about staying integrated and right. being relevant to a, a journey that's taking the customer into the future, a continuous transformation journey. And therefore, it's not taboo. It's something that we always like when we even when we started our dedicated services team, we believe that launch and get the team out. And we've realized in our space, we can never get the team out because if the moment we say there is no new integration needed, you know, the client is stagnated. And they're standing for a reason. They're probably going through a business crisis. Otherwise, how will sales and growth innovation stagnate? It shouldn't, right? Yeah. So continuous service on this front for us actually means that the client is doing really well and is a good signal for us. And we've chosen, we've built a model to be able to support that. Right. Yeah, it's certainly important for us to integrate in the journey of the multiple users itself, right? And if you look at the various hierarchies of users, etc., they may be using god knows how many systems in the stack itself so it becomes super relevant for us you know to build for that we've spoken about sales about product about customer success and you know service delivery let's talk about partnerships right and again you know partnerships is like a summation of all of these things you could have sales partnerships and you could have service delivery partners someday in the future you could have product partnerships where you say that you know i don't really want to build all the bells and whistles of this entire thing i can integrate with a few of these readily out of the box uh, available solutions and so on and so forth so how do we think about partners specifically when you look at the various functions as such yeah so in our case again i i think the answer may be different for different companies even targeting large enterprises in our case it was let's talk about the different partnerships that can happen right we're working with very large enterprises and outside of one two systems usually it's their auxiliary systems are not standard 50 percent of the market might be on a similar crm but the other 50 percent is very very diverse right and so therefore for us product partnerships comes last product partnerships come when we are seeing a repeated ask across customers and consistency in the kind of soft problems our auxiliary systems need to solve for and there is a reasonably clear winner in in that segment right that could be whether it's a crm that's reasonably standard in that industry or it could be a content management system which is becoming more standard within the industry etc only then do product partnerships truly come into picture or it could be the cloud that you're deploying on so those have been the few product partnerships that we've actually done it's been with one of the largest crms it's been with some of the largest cloud providers etc the thing that for us given we target large enterprises there are many that where we can work directly with there are many whose core systems are also heavily solution for or maintained by sis so go to market to those accounts becomes partners also help us sis as partners or consultants as partners also help us access these accounts and also give comfort to the customer that yes we know your crm deployment is crazy we know that because we have helped you set it up 
but we also know that here is Vimo, which fits extremely well into a situation like this and has already done this in three other places. It brings the credibility, right, for helping you open doors into some of these large accounts. Outside of that, like I said, large enterprise scenario, especially with a new category, it's a lot about influencer marketing for us to open doors rather than, you know, for example, website or keyword discovery or AdWords discovery or SEO, right? And therefore, those partnerships with influencers within that community, like X leaders in banking, in banking, right? X head of retail bank of one of the largest banks in that country might help us open doors with many other banks, especially if we have solved the problem for their own bank in the past, right? So uh, go-to-market uh, or sales partnerships for us are primary. Uh, service delivery, we have taken a call not to outsource that for at least another couple of years. And that was largely because we were getting into bigger and bigger markets. So we were discovering what the endpoints end of product should be or shouldn't be and what boundaries need to be configurable versus customizable versus integratable, etc. Right. So we did not draw the lines very thickly and uh, therefore it's tough to expose the code base or some of those loose ends to third party for service delivery. So we chose to keep it in house. Also, we wanted to make sure that the first fight and customers in every major market see the best of Vimo, right? Solve it the right way. And that's why we've kept it in-house for now. Right. Okay. So let's move on to your role as a CEO, right? I kind of look at you as an orchestrator. You're able to get all of these teams to rally around one core mission. And oftentimes in our journey, a certain metric has become our North Star, right? So I remember four years back, adoption was a huge deal for us. I remember walking into the offices office and you would see the adoption numbers right right there for everyone to see and literally everyone was paranoid about that then you know expansion and then you know net new logo so on and so forth at various points i mean these these metrics become super important right yeah how important is it to define that one north star metric for your teams at a company level and how do you get your teams to rally around that north star metric yeah so i First of all, thankfully, I like to keep things simple, at least while the org itself is very complex because we are in seven countries, three major regions that we're catering to, massive teams spread out, etc. At least in terms of what we need to achieve, it usually comes down to one number at any point in time. Early on, DAO, which is adoption, daily active usage for us was very important because we were saying our entire journey started by saying, hey, enterprise solutions built user first. We'll solve the problem of the user. We'll be his or her personal assistant, right? So that would be a complete outright lie if our DAO was 10, 20%, just like any CRM, right? Then what is the big difference for all our claims? Therefore, that mattered. It mattered because we really wanted to be honest to the problem we were solving. We genuinely believe and even today know that you solve that problem, you have that customer for life. We've been in this really privileged position where we've never lost an enterprise customer. The only time that has happened in COVID or very similar situations was when they went through business disruption or bankruptcy or some such, right? We've never lost a customer that we were delivering value for otherwise. Now, that is truly because they know that this is, they've tried solving some of this on their own or with something else, but this is the first time they're seeing very high degree of adoption and a reliability of data coming in through these systems. So that is why DAO mattered a lot for us. And then it was about, you have one logo, you need to get to 1020. So we counted logos, we counted large banks, large insurers coming, first account in every market, etc. 
once you raise funding, I have to be honest about it, growth matters a lot. <laughs> so the North Star metric was bookings. It was about that 2x, 3x, whatever, depending on our, our life stage, right? Hitting that year on year. And at this point in time, uh, for us in the last year, in spite of COVID happening, etc., there were hard numbers we were shooting for both in terms of growth and there were milestone markers we were looking for in terms of breaking into two of the biggest markets in the world right and we rallied the whole team behind that and committed ourselves to it no matter what right and that happened thankfully sometimes it's not like it always happens right this year now that those markets are broken into we are rallying teams heavily behind a certain minimum scale we need to so it's proof is done now prove that this is scalable and predictable uh, right and again it comes down to certain growth numbers within these markets certain booking numbers etc right but at any the number itself has what we our North Star metric itself has changed over time and will change. What has remained the same is at any point in time, there is one thing we have cared about more than everything else, right? And it becomes easy because it's easy for teams to make choices. Drop the ball here versus drop the ball there because in a startup, you're usually crunched for bandwidth. You will drop the ball somewhere. Which one is okay to, right? And this North Star metric usually allows you to make some choices on this. Right. Yeah, that prioritization becomes super important on a daily basis. And also it's such an easy way to communicate what is right to the organization, right? I mean, it's such a scalable aspect, I would say. And last year, I think one of my favorite moments was, you know, a week after we had announced the work from home and, you know, how everyone literally came together, many different, many nights, many different teams to really figure, you know, what our strategy should be going forward, right? And the way we reacted to it is... Uh, I mean, it was such a visceral, yeah, uh, yeah, amazing feeling. So, you know, in all that we've discussed, we've realized that, you know, a lot of the times teams overlap and they have to overlap in some sense and they have to work together. How do you ensure that, you know, their efforts amplify and, you know, they don't cancel each other out? Because oftentimes, I mean, they may, they might be at odds with each other. Whereas, you know, one team is looking for something and like, for example, sales is looking for bookings and, you know, CS is looking for, uh, you know, customer love and expansion, not expansion at that point, but, you know, they're, they're sort of at odds at each other in some sense, right? How do you get teams to sort of overlap very meaningfully with each other and uh, not really cancel each other's efforts out? Yeah, I think one thing that has been great about Mimo is every one of our functional leaders have understood that ambiguity will be part of how you live. And while you have not star what is right and wrong, in the short term, medium term, it may not be the same things which are right and wrong, right? You will do things in the short term which may not work for you at scale and you should not be doing at scale. I do believe between functions, a bit of healthy friction is necessary. Marketing has to push product, product has to reign in marketing, right? Sales has to push product, product has to reign in sales, uh, right? And same thing, sales will value sell but cannot cross the line otherwise customer success has to bear the brunt of how do you create product out of thin air right so there is healthy friction initially it used to scare me initially i felt like i had to solve for everything and show exactly what the black and white line is and somehow the black and white line three years down what is obvious at scale wasn't so obvious with the first two customers and the first 10 problems to solve so very quickly what we realized is that the only way we can solve for this interfunctional friction is to acknowledge what is right and wrong. Here is black and white 
we acknowledge what is right and wrong we will never go behind this icp but for for the at scale right but here is why we need to do this now let's also agree to disagree that in the short term we need to do this mm-hmm. to be able to get past learn potentially and probably break through a problem right and find a way of you know getting to the next stage so for example for people who have double hatted sales would like their obviously exclusive ae someone would like their exclusive customer success someone would like exclusive pre-sales but we agree that hey it's only like you we've still not broken through the market let that person double hat and play all three roles and let's hire someone who's who can play all three roles right and you're reaching an effective compromise it's a very easy example to give the leaders and say you are sharing a resource now which there is no way you can share that resource once you have three clients but you're doing it now and that's a compromise mm-hmm. right so i think if you're open about it and acknowledge and tell them where you're headed but why this is needed in the short term i've seen people come around and to, thankfully that's how most of the people we have brought on board are intuitively wired to work or maybe those who couldn't adapt to that probably aren't with us anymore roshan so it could have been any of these but thankfully the company has come to into into a good steady state on how to operate with this ambiguity right no i mean that's uh, that's absolutely right i think i can speak for all of the functional heads at least you know all of them tend to understand the other functions to a reasonable extent at least more than i have ever seen in my career i feel right and also having that higher purpose clearly defined in terms of you know what is the company shooting for allows you to sort of empathize with the other team that you're working with for sure so you know speaking from the other side of the table right uh, you've now worked with enterprise uh, organizations for so long right large enterprises how have you seen their attitude change you know i mean cloud has become so huge and we spoke about the whole saasifying of the stack itself right and people are lot more open to you know adopting startup solutions and everyone literally has an innovation program and you know software procurement is itself has become a lot more saas and cloud friendly as such right so how have you seen that attitude change over the years i think we have to thank all the big legacy software vendors for stopping to uh, you know for pausing their sales of on premise solutions honestly a lot has uh, happened because of that i mean while we all would love to take the credit of how we brought in the biggest banks onto cloud for the first time ever etc it's also because on premise crm stopped selling even like even these large legacy companies said hey 100% of my incentive for my aes now is only on cloud sales right you don't get for an on premise upgrade you don't make money uh, so no one's pushing that also Uh, right so uh, having said that therefore i guess because of all of the happy confluence of like all of these coming together at the same time plus pandemic kind of accelerating some of this uh, folks were forced to adopt cloud and startup tech a little before they thought because there was no other way to do for example virtual calling <laughs> within days of having to work from home and once you break the dam you start wondering are there other solutions where i can start doing this my life was so easy and business is so thankful finally i'm a hero right for doing this rather than the person who was risking the whole company uh, also many of the cloud providers like us like everyone have matured a lot in this time frame and had to become extremely tight on security performance dr etc right so we've also proven that we can t- like we can handle both handle issues like that and are prepared to handle challenges like that right so i think somewhere we've come to that optimal point which has probably unleashed adoption which is probably thankfully like beefed up valuations from like 8x 6x 8x to almost 30 40x right so 
we are in the right place having said that i don't think the enterprises questions are different and they would look at you they would give you a natural advantage because here i you are a cool saas company that is coming to the table right cloud native company you still have to you know show credibility the fact that you have solved problems like this or are prepared to solve problems like this by showing very very deep understanding of their context their core risks and being able to address them right you still have to probably go through the poc route where you've shown that your promise can be fulfilled like the few weeks to launch adoption all of these promises that you make will you still probably have to go through the poc route right so i don't think the buying journey changes uh, their willingness to add you to that buying decision definitely has changed uh, right for enterprises right so this has been a fascinating conversation we have discussed many different aspects of building and selling to the enterprise a lot of nuances i've discovered as well you know even after 4 years of like uh, doing this so parting question to you you are on i think year 7 or year 8 of the founder journey and there are lots of peaks and drops in this journey right the one thing that you can be sure of in the in a startup is that there is there are never lean days there are never like flat lines i mean it's always up or down right it's excitement or anxiety almost in equal halves you keep doing this up and down and so on for founders listening to the podcast how do you think they should think about the journey itself i mean if they're going to go 10 15 years to building a great business you know how should they think about the journey itself any words of advice any things that have worked for you personally yeah i think two things that have worked for uh, me and i can say even venkat co-founder right because we keep talking about this quite often highs and lows you can't avoid really really bad days you can't avoid really good days of course you won't avoid right i think two three things matter we've realized along this journey one is initially yes you're pouring your whole passion into giving birth to this baby and like making sure it's alive for a couple of years and making it to you know validation either because of big customer wins or investments or whatever that is right after that i think yes it's you pour everything into this at that point in time but right after very immediately it's very important for you to figure out something that you care about in your life with equally or more for mm. this cannot be i know that a like lot of founders go through mental health and even at times even i feel like i'm going through some mental health crisis etc there is a lot of second guessing you will do there is a lot of thing bets that won't work a few that will work it's ups and downs you can't avoid right but it's important for you to have something in your life that is more important than this i've seen people say that this is everything and they're putting other things on hold in life i've heard people say marriage on hold and children on hold and something else that they care about on hold and you know a passion on hold and hobbies on hold etc i don't think that is healthy for the long term this is not a sprint it's a marathon and anyone should look at building a business that way you get lucky because you know you are a zoom and pandemic has helped you grow like a 100x but otherwise when you're starting up there is a 99.9% probability math says that you will fail and to make it successful you have to survive and give it enough time do the right things right so you definitely need something beyond this second thing is for venkar and me somewhere the joy of building this has actually been the team and org that we have built right so it keeps us sane it keeps us real it also uh, we derive a lot of like why do you show up in office every day uh, right not to use cool enterprise tech right like you show up in office because you want to catch up with these people and it's fun and you start meetings with a laugh and a joke and catching up on what's happening in other people's lives right so i think that matters you have to i think you have to be very careful in what kind of a company you build 
somewhere with fundraisers it's very easy to hire a talent acquisition team and boom you're going to grow like 2x 3x 4x overnight and all of those are also feathers in the cap but if you lose control on the culture and values of the team it's not easy to i'm not saying we have full control we always get shocked by new things we discover which are falling apart right but you have to make sure that uh, whatever your central pillars of your culture and values are propagate through the team because then showing up in office every day will bring you back in terms of even in tough times right the third thing has been which i've learned probably through others more than myself is to be able to celebrate small things increasingly as a founder you've done an a you've done a b you do a c you like do big big things and you'll get these awards and recognition you forget how important the really small things are for example the first time there was a news article about vimo which really did not move the needle for us it was not targeting our icp but suddenly parents were so happy with their children for joining vimo because we were not a fraud as per the newspaper we were something right and that made a difference it just released the pressure at home for many of our early employees right and so and then for one a winning one deal matters so much for someone finishing two years at a job when they have never stuck around anywhere else for one year matters a lot and even myself i questioned my previous career during the highest points in that career i was really going having a very good time when i questioned whether still this was something i was getting joy out of right so when people are having their highs i think it's important to acknowledge and be a part of that also to validate the fact that you know this comes together and this is where we want you and you want to be right so it's important to celebrate on the go not just park it for some major fundraise or an ipo or some such so those are three things which i think has helped me and venkat stay sane for longer <laughs> and hopefully we'll see us through all right that's a great note to end the podcast on i could actually go on for another hour but i mean i'm sure that you have things to do so thank you so much for this conversation yamini i really really enjoyed this conversation thank you so much roshan love being here thank you so much for listening if you liked this episode then don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite platform and share this episode with all of your fellow startup operators Also follow the startup operator on LinkedIn and Twitter for more updates. Stay safe, take care and see you soon on a brand new episode of the startup operator.